Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. <laughs> oh, that was so menacing. Thank you. That was very spooky. I, d- I did okay. <gasps> you scare me. It's so scary. It's, it's 1.30 in the afternoon <laughs> and it's very bright. It's too scary, too spooky for me. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, friends. We are in our second week of a spooky season. Yeah, and this one's going to be an interesting discussion because... We kind of had to do some work. (laughs) I had to do a lot of work. I'm actually quite disappointed if I'm going to be totally honest, because as you all know, or if this is your first time, hi, welcome. Uh, This is news for you. But I try to find articles, usually academic or really in-depth think pieces on all of the movies that we talk about. And Night of the Demons is one that I thought we would have plenty to pick from. Or at least a few. There's like nothing. Like Uh there is... A very few amount of articles that I could find that were doing something other than just a review or mm-hmm. a, hey, this is what happens in this movie and the Blu-ray looks pretty good. Uh-huh. Um, so that made things a little tough, but I watched the documentary about the movie. Thank you, Scream Factory. It's on the special features of that Scream Factory Blu-ray. Um, so that was cool. But uh, horror fans... What are you doing? Sleeping on Night of the Demons. You need to be writing some shit. Uh, this movie is a very definition of schlock kind of movie. And schlock is not a dirty word in this household. Absolutely not. We encourage schlock in here. Correct. And I think maybe that that's why people didn't do much of a deep dive. And if I'm going to be honest with you, it's been a stressful week because of one Dave Chappelle. So we've had a miserable series of days in this household. And I was kind of looking forward to a movie that didn't require much thinking. And then we <laughs> ended up with actually really good stuff to think about. And I went, okay, cool. Back to back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we are talking today about Night of the Demons, the original 1988 version Although I know there are plenty out there who are big apologists for 2009, unfortunately, it is not that movie. We're going, we're going OG on this one. Uh, we like to, for Spooky Season, try to do a, a pretty big range of time as well as accessibility in terms of like audience. Uh, so this one is one that I think people either know or they at least know images of. But mm-hmm. this is this is a fun, like you said, schlocky horror movie. 
this is probably the schlockiest horror movie that we've covered. I think this is, I would say this is the schlockiest movie, but then I was sitting there like, no, there is some non-horror movie <laughs> schlock that we've done on this show so far. <laughs> but that's fine because there is a weird bleed over in like decom and children's media and made for TV lifetime films and horror. Cause it's all, it's all the same kind of caliber schlock. It's just different genres of it. Oh yeah. It's, they're all on different degrees of the schlock spectrum and I love all of it. Uh-huh. So Harmony, what did you know about Night of the Demon before recording this episode? Uh, you showed it to me like three years ago. I did, because I have a coffee mug with Linnea Quigley's face on it covered in the lipstick. Yes, and (laughs) I think that this was before I knew that, but it was probably because you showed me Return of the Living Dead, and I think Trash is fucking incredible. I'm pretty sure that is exactly what happened. Yeah, so now I've just been like slowly working my way through Linnea Quigley's filmography. Of which there are a lot. Yeah, I think we've gotten like the big ones. Yeah, I've shown you the, all of her big ones. Yeah, this yeah. one and uh, Sorority Babes. And the Slime Ball Bolorama and, and, and Nightmare, Nightmare Sisters. Sisters. Like, some good some good solid stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've gotten you some, some good stuff there. Some quality schlock. Come on, your face looks fine. I've never seen anybody spend more time in a mirror. Relax, I just want to look good for the boys. You did remember to invite some cute boys to the party, I hope. Of course I did. And we're going to scare the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah, Linnea Quigley is definitely the the queen of the bees, as they named her in the 80s, for sure. And there's actually some fun information about that in regard to this movie that we'll get to a, a little bit later. But before we really dive into this title, I would love for you to set the stage of 1988. Let's talk about what was going on in the world of teen movies, the world of horror. Just paint me a picture of a world that I was not yet alive to experience. Um, I'll, I'll say that there's not a lot of bleed over between this and either teen films or teen girl films or horror films like... This kind of is sitting on an island of itself in a lot of ways. Okay, I love that. Yeah, so looking at some of the bigger teen movie releases of the year, it was all about boys. Like heartthrobby, teen beat boy type movies. And like when you think of like teen movies from the 80s, you never ever go to the boy movies really. Maybe like a Ferris Bueller or something like that. But I'd say that they pretty heavily are either like mixed amongst the genders or heavily favor girls in terms of like our our continued reverence of them oh for sure and i think that it has a great deal to do with the molly ringwald john hughesisms Mm -hmm. of it and i think we view those films as like oh these are teen movies whereas a lot of the boy teen movies were like oh those are sex comedies Mm -hmm. like our brains compartmentalize them in Mm -hmm. a way because they're coming from such different angles because at the same time no one ever thinks of Back to the Future as a teen boy movie. It's just a classic. They're like, oh, that's just a classic, or oh, mm-hmm. that's just a science fiction film. Yeah. No, that's a teen boy movie. Yeah, it is. And uh, like the name value in some of like the bigger teen releases of the year, which I don't know like any of these, so I don't know how well they've held up or how much people continue to appreciate them in the same way that you would like Back to the Future or John Hughes, but mm-hmm. they include 
Johnny B. Good, where Anthony Michael Hall is a jock and Robert Downey Jr. is also there. Well, yeah, because uh, Anthony Michael Hall finally went from nerd to being bulky as hell. Yeah, which is still strange for me to think about. He's going to be Tommy Doyle in Halloween Kills. I'm very like, excited. He's been buff for a while. Like, he's been a man. Well, yeah, he's a full adult human now. <laughs> um, you have Bright Lights Big City with Michael J. Fox and Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, I love you, Kiefer. Oh, he's he's here a lot this year. Well, yeah, he, he, 80s Kiefer Sutherland is in like its own league. Mm-hmm. You have 1969 with Robert Downey Jr. and Kiefer Sutherland again. Look at them. Look at them, boys. You have Young Guns with Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland again, and Charlie Sheen. I fucking love Young Guns. <laughs> I've never seen it. It is very fun. That is a Patreon episode waiting to happen. Okay, cool. Keep that in mind. Uh, you have Tape Heads with John Cusack. Also fun. I like Tape Heads. You have License to Drive with Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. I also like License to Drive a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, not not full-blown teen movie, but like kind of bridging... Almost skipping over the teen boy movie thing is big with Tom Hanks. Yeah. So, big is like the big is one of those movies where like it feels like it's a teen or preteen movie, but it's definitely meant for adults. It's mm-hmm. meant for adults to look back fondly on their lives and like be better people now from the eyes of a child kind of thing. Yeah, so that I I understand that. And with the exception of Big, that really is just trying to sell like magazine cover teen heartthrob boys. Oh yeah. And that's really really wild cuz when you look at like the teen girl releases, there's not a lot of substantial ones. Okay. Um this is like the end of her teen career, but you have For Keeps with Molly Ringwald. And she plays a pregnant girl from Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Everyone's favorite Molly Ringwald movie, For Keeps. I mean, it really put the kibosh (laughs) on that period of her career and then kind of the kibosh on her career in general. I don't think people knew what to do with Molly Ringwald. No. I genuinely don't think they knew what to do with her because she was such a relatable person. And the end of the 80s into the 90s, and especially once we started getting into the 2000s, that's when we started kind of cranking out actors like brands. And Mm -hmm. I don't think people knew what to do with Molly Ringwald. John Hughes understood Molly Ringwald. Yeah. That is one thing that I will give that weird conservative man is that he knew what to do with somebody like Molly Ringwald. And I think people were either perplexed by her or afraid that they would not be able to bring her to the same heights as a John Hughes movie. So I think that it just kind of like, ah. Yeah, and I think also by the time you got to the 90s, uh, with like the advent of grunge in particular, there was absolutely nothing more uncool than the 80s. And Molly Ringwald is the girl of the 80s. Right. Whereas all of these dudes that I just mentioned in those other movies, like they could transition into like man roles. But everyone's like, no, you're Molly Ringwald. You're the teen queen. You're, Mm -hmm. no. Yeah, she really got pigeonholed. Yeah. So you also have like Mystic Pizza. Oh, I love Mystic Pizza. I've been to Mystic Pizza. I went there because my dad said it was a movie and I happened to be in that town. (laughs) It was fine. <laughs> um, uh, there's Hairspray. Oh, I love Hairspray. We will definitely do a Hairspray episode at some point. We'll do more than one Hairspray episode. And for clarity, <laughs> we're referring to the John Waters movie. That will come first before we do the musical. Yeah. And you also have Heathers. Oh, Heathers. Yeah. Heathers is, I think I spoiled it on the on one of the previous episodes. That's likely going to be our two-year anniversary movie. Probably. I'm pretty sure it's that's what we're going to do. the most requested one behind Mean Girls. Yeah. 
So like that's that's kind of it for teen girl movies. There's nothing else really substantial going on. And in the way of all of these, like they're smaller releases that are all grossing like not their budget or at the very least not even breaking like five, ten million. So they're all very modest hits. Like Hairspray did extremely well in rentals as an example. Oh yeah, for sure. So that that's sort of it. And if you want to roll over to like the horror franchises, it's it's just a domination of sequels. This is when yeah. all of the big name sequels were just in full swing. So you have Halloween 4, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Friday the 13th, Part 7 already. <laughs> yeah, they really cranked the shit out of some Friday movies. Every single year it was like Saw. Poltergeist 3, Hellraiser 2, Sleepaway Camp 2, The First Child's Play, which did not know it was going to be a franchise yet. And then stuff that did not get sequels, like They Live, Beetlejuice, and our sleepover for this month movie, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Aww. Which also underperformed, unfortunately. God, 80, that's such a weird year, as I'm thinking about it. And I think you're right, because it is just so many sequels. The slasher boom of the 80s was such a prolific and profitable, emphasis on profitable time, oh, yeah. that so many people were either putting up these really low budget slasher films or all of the money was being cranked into these franchise hitters mm-hmm. because they were guaranteed money makers. Even mm-hmm. if they sucked total butt, they were going to make money because people were like, well, I got to see what happens. And also they cost like nothing to make. Yeah, they really Like comparatively, really like the profit margins were extreme. Yeah. So- yeah. Like, that's kind of it. All of the stuff you get, including, like, even Elvira, it's it's all cult classic stuff now in retrospect, mm-hmm. like Heathers. And there's not really, like, a space for teen girl stuff that exists during this particular year, which is so weird because you think of there being, like, a really defined formula of the 80s teen movie. And by mm-hmm. this point, it was like... Ah, it should the, have been a well-oiled the, machine. The formula has eaten... It, it's a snake eating its own tail, and it is qu- quite full at this point. <laughs> Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so as far as like a teen movie goes, I can sort of see where Night of the Demons fits in. Mm -hmm. But as far as like a prominent teen girl horror movie goes, it's really an outlier. Oh, yeah. And I think to some extent, Night of the Demons has a similar reputation, in my opinion, as last week's movie Ginger Snaps. Where Night of the Demons is one of those movies that if you are a horror fan, you know this movie. If you are a casual horror watcher, you may have seen this, you may have rented it before, but as far as new audiences finding it, I don't think this is one that gets sought out as much Mm -hmm. as something like a Ginger Snaps. Because teens today really gravitate towards things like Ginger Snaps, like Jennifer's Body, things that are really subverting a lot of expectations. And this movie doesn't get brought up in those same conversations a lot, which I don't fully understand because there's a lot of really cool shit going on here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because the the effects and the kills and the scares are so over the top. I don't know if it's because there is a high level of camp to this. I don't know if it's because something we'll definitely dive into. The One of the final survivors of this movie is a black man mm-hmm. and kind of an effeminate black man at that very so maybe the dominant audience at the time of like a bunch of white people were like well i don't relate with the survivor so i don't like this movie Mm -hmm. like i don't know i wasn't in 1988 so i have no fucking clue Mm -hmm. but these are all moving pieces that i think influence the longevity of this movie 
and I'm very excited to kind of dive into it. Yeah. So so slap me with that that Frandango synopsis. Uh, Frandango did me dirty this week because they don't have a synopsis for us. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're going over to the IMDb, the IMDb, and this description is fine. <laughs> but according to our friends over at IMDb, Night of the Demons. Ten teenagers party at an abandoned funeral parlor on Halloween night. When an evil force awakens, demonic spirits keep them from leaving and turn their gathering into a living hell. Yeah, I mean, that's not terribly That sounds like wrong. a poster. Yeah. yeah. It's a poster or like the, the small blurb on the back of a VHS. Oh, yeah. Like, Definitely. It's pretty, it's pretty cut and dry. It doesn't spoil anything, which is okay. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's a pretty pretty good descriptor. I think you know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you get the tone as much as you could because this movie is very fun. This movie is funny, but also it's not being like <laughs> towards the camera. No. I mean, there's a lot of one-liners and stuff, but it treats itself seriously. Oh, yeah. The, some of the one-liners and just, just the dialogue in this movie in general are reasons enough why I don't understand why this isn't, like, a massive, massive, like, highly sought-after property that we see, you know, T-shirts made of and pop culture things constantly. Well, it got sequels, right? It got some sequels, but, like, people really didn't pay attention to it. The remake, a lot of people don't even know even exists. Didn't it bomb? It bombed really hard. It's not. Okay. It's not great. Um, The main character is played by Shannon Elizabeth because she was like the it girl at that time to like, oh, she'll take her shirt off and do horror movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of me has like a theory in the back of my brain that that movie was remade specifically for her to do that. But (laughs) that's neither here nor there. Um, But we when we're talking about this movie, we're kind of dealing with. Uh, an ensemble cast, but there's definitely some some superstars mm-hmm. within it. First one being our our hostess with the mostest, our OG demon, Angela. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Goth Bride Angela? She really is the like OG Nancy, isn't she? She sure fucking is. Like just in terms of hair and styling, and I. I don't know. I don't know what to think of that. It's it's kind of really eerie when you look at them like side by side and go, this, this had to be deliberate, right? Yeah. And for clarity, Harmony is referring to Nancy from The Craft, mm-hmm. not like Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. No, 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 no. Very different Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. I love Angela. I'm kind of obsessed with her. I also love that her Halloween costume is this like goth bride thing. But the way that she styled, part of me thinks like, did she just wear this like is this just what she looks like outside of halloween because uh-huh. i would believe it oh I, I would too she's got some very like Susie sue meets elvira styled makeup um there's a really clever costuming detail that when we see her the first time when they're at the mini mart she has cross earrings and then later when she's possessed uh the crosses are inverted mm-hmm. which i think is so funny and stupid and like not a thing that most people probably even notice, but I notice. So, yeah. costume designer, I appreciate your efforts. It was it it did not go in vain. The devil's in the details. The devil is in the details. Um, but I love Angela. I love that she is a take charge bitch, uh-huh. um, which is I think something we definitely need more of. I love that she's also kind of a delinquent. Uh, I think they're all kind of delinquents. That's true. They are all kind of delinquent. But like this, this party was her idea. Yeah. After she and Suzanne end up like 
shopping li- shoplifting a lot of stuff from that mini mart. They shoplift so much stuff from that mini like mart. Like a giant pillowcase sack full of things. They straight up do like teenage trick or treating at a mini mart and just get snacks and booze. Yeah, because the uh, the checkout clerks are just too busy looking at Linnea Quigley's ass, and like far far be it for me to judge them for that. Because, like, that's what she's doing. She's deliberately like, hey, look at my ass. And they're like, do you have sour balls? Shame. Bet you don't get many blowjobs. Uh, Uh What a great line. (laughs) Her everything in this movie is fantastic. But I I have to say, kudos to everyone else who's in this mini mart not snitching. Right. Because she's just stealing stuff right in front of everyone's face. Oh, yeah. And she's very hard to miss. She's like a giant black cloud of fabric because her dress has so much tulle on it Uh and lace. And she's got huge hair and like very vibrant makeup. Like, and she's not even trying to be like sly about it. She's just straight up. The confidence. Oh, yeah. The audacity that she has. Um, pretty great. Very much a badass. I've always wanted to be Angela. Like, I I feel like a lot of people watch this movie and there's the people that they're like, oh, I like this character. I relate to this character. Mm -hmm. Angela's the one that I always aspire to be. Mm -hmm. I think she's great. I think that, uh, it's on our our, like very, very long list of Halloween costumes that we want to be Angela and Suzanne and yeah. Oh, and God, of course, yeah. being the goth bitch you are, you have to be Angela. Duh, duh, Which duh. means my ass will be out, and that's fine. <laughs> so speaking of asses being out, let's talk about Suzanne. Let's talk about Linnea Quigley. How do you feel about her? I, I mean, I just, I'm going to just try to actually call her by her character name because she's one of those actresses that I just never learned what the character's name is. Jamie Lee Curtis is another one. <laughs> yeah, where I'm just like, ah, pff, you're Jamie Lee Curtis. You're Linnea Quigley. I don't, I don't know what this character's name is. <laughs> I know Trash's name because Trash is taking her clothes off again <laughs> like that line's real real great but no Suzanne's tight um she's she's the uh like the kind of th- this is the meme of the two friends who are opposites but are oh, best yeah. friends because like oh you diverged but you're still the same kind of whatever it's that like, picture of those two houses next to each other where the one's all black and the other one looks like a barbie dream house yeah this is these two standing next to each other yeah they really are yeah but they're both like similarly trashy and just absolute rapscallions yeah i love them and something really fun is that obviously linnea quigley is a legendary horror scream queen mm-hmm. and she originally was not going to sign on for this movie because as she says in the documentary after her kind of like explosion in horror she kept getting all of these auditions for horror movies and a lot of horror movies deal with teenagers mm-hmm. and she got her start like relatively young so by the time this movie rolled around she was 26 years old yeah this is like four or five years after return of the living dead right so she's like i don't like i can't play a teenager anymore i look too old people have been you know rejecting me for roles because they're like nah you look too old tell that to the people who cast grease (laughs) so then she uh you know she wasn't going to say yes to this and then finally her managers or her agent somebody was like please just go talk to these people and they offered her the role immediately. And she was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of how she gets all of her roles now. At this point, yeah, Linnea Quigley is offer only. That She she's, does she's, not have to audition. She's probably been that way for a while. I think so, too. Yeah. And she she's still a working actor, which is really cool. I see her pop up a lot in a lot of, you know, low-budget indie films um, because she's willing to work for, you know, cheaper rates than a lot of people. And that's cool mm-hmm. because now then a lot of up-and-coming horror filmmakers they get to learn from her and they get to you know hear what it's like to be on set with her and you know just 
what what have the the quote unquote greats like what were they like to work with and learn and that's really cool and i like that she she does that cuz mm-hmm. she's she's the bomb.com she is and i i do like that in terms of our two characters cuz sexuality is like a big part of this movie and it certainly works well into like the themings of the deep deep digging research that we had to go to find other people's opinions on it is that uh Angela doesn't really seem to show much interest in anyone. She kind of hates everyone, if I'm being honest. And that's also kind of why I like her. <laughs> yeah, same. But Suzanne is all about impressing the hot guys. I want to look good for the boy. Yeah, so she's constantly like preening herself and checking her lipstick. And the lipstick definitely comes back into play in a big way. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I I like that there's this uh, this duality with our essentially our two main characters who then become our main villains. What and that's something else that I think is so interesting about this movie is that we are introduced to them and they kind of become in our minds like oh these are our our main characters. Well, yeah, just look at them; they're so captivating. Exactly, look at them; they're so stylized. They are so they they just demand your vision anytime they're on screen. And then they become the the two main villains with, you know, obviously more than that. But mm-hmm. they are the fixtures. They are the iconic things that you remember from this movie. And they're not the final girls. And I think that's so fucking rad. Mm-hmm. Because this is a decade that is made by villainous men oh, yeah. and final girls. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that's like, no, we're having female villains and you're going to love them. And we do. Yeah, especially because at this point in like the numbered horror franchises where they all have like ludicrous entries at this point, mm-hmm. you're not paying for the main character. You don't, you don't care about it, who like who the hero is. You're paying to see Jason murder some schmuck. You're paying to see Michael Myers return finally. <laughs> and then proceed to just be in a lot of really trashy films. <laughs> I will say, I'll come for me. I'll say most of the Halloween films are bad. Well, but, they are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like Michael Myers returned this year and then like you don't care about anybody other than him. If you cared about anybody other than him, Halloween 3 would have done better. You know what? That's a great point. People are paying for the monsters during this era. You all right? Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, shit. Ah! oh, don't tell me you're leaving. Sal wanted to go, but he decided to stick around. <laughs> so something really interesting is, so it's directed by Kevin Tenney, who at the time was not a big horror guy. Like he had done a movie called Witchboard, which I also love that has Tony Katane in it. And that's, rad as hell but he was not like a big horror guy so he he says in the documentary that he wasn't fully aware that they were in the middle of this huge slasher boom so he didn't really he He just just, he just missed that i guess he just missed it or wasn't paying attention i don't fully know but i think that that's really smart and makes a lot of sense to me because night of the demons is I get, like it's a demonic possession movie, but you could read it as a slasher if you want to. No one really gets it, slashed. No, nobody really does. People, people get brutalized in other ways. Correct, and I think that's why this doesn't fall into all of the the conventions that most horror movies were doing at this time. Mm-hmm. Was because he wasn't making a movie to follow those formulas. He just wanted to make this movie. Yeah, and I think that's really really cool. Yeah, I agree. Like you know, you have. 
stooge literally twisting someone's head basically off their shoulders by turning it all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's kind of par for the course for how a lot of the kills work in this movie where it's like, oh, people are getting like murdered, but they're not bloody messes. Uh-huh. Like they're getting killed in other creative ways. And maybe that's just not as satisfying for people who are really craving a lot of blood and gore in their films at this point. I think I find the kills in this movie to be so much more creative than oh, yeah. what was going on a lot in oh, this my God. decade. S- Sal's death. When, like, the tombstone pops up and it's, like, his date that he was born and the date he dies just says tonight. It's so good. Oh, it's good. I love it. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Stooge and um, I want to talk about it. Fucking, he, <laughs> like, he is the absolute goddamn worst. But goddamn it if he is not one of the, like, the best people for lines and bodacious dudisms. <laughs> There's so many bodacious dudisms in this movie from him. I love that we're also kind of introduced to him by, like showing his ass yeah like literally showing his ass like dressed as himself with a pig nose and that's his costume he's got these like cuts in the side of his like steps uh shaved into the side of his head Mm -hmm. and they're dyed colors that in my brain remind me of the bears like the like the 80s bears which would make total sense because the chicago bears were like hot shit in the 80s so every time i look at him my brain is just like oh this is like a a dude that i know from chicago oh yeah he's absolutely just, he's built like a linebacker yeah yeah big guy flat top mullet like with steps cut into it wearing a pig nose being obnoxious he's like, got like a cut off sweatshirt which is like such workout attire uh-huh. <laughs> and he's got like fingerless gloves <laughs> Yeah, because he, he's a tough guy too. <laughs> yeah, his styling is is ridiculous. But when he shows his ass, it's because there's this crotchety old man who is intentionally buying razor blades to put in apples to like fuck up Halloween, uh-huh. <laughs> which is such like a you know urban legend thing like that that didn't happen and. It, it's been turned into the way it is this year where it's like, be careful, watch your kids candy for trick or treat because there are these weed edibles that look just like the real thing. Yeah, no one's putting fucking weed in kids candy. No, that shit's expensive as hell. Yeah, razor blades cost way less. Yeah. And this guy, like, what a weird ending to this movie as well where it comes back around and his wife makes him a pie with all the apples that didn't get taken by kids and murders him. And she's just like, <laughs> well, to be fair, he fucking sucks. Yeah. He's a dick. <laughs> and, but like, why did the movie come back around like that? That's the end of the movie. I don't know. I have <laughs> book ended in a really weird way. I have a love hate relationship with horror movies that end on things that kind of don't actually have anything to do with the story. Like a lot of people give a lot of shit to the last house on the left remake. There's a lot of reasons to, argue about that movie but i don't want to get into that but that movie ends spoiler alert for like this almost 20 year old movie at this point um that's a lie it's not that old wait maybe it is i don't know i'm old um (laughs) like 15 15 okay whatever but the end of the last house on the left remake ends with him putting a guy's head in a microwave and like like the story has ended there have been like ending shots and then it's like oh yeah p.s here's this uh broken microwave kill his head's gonna explode and like it's cool and it looks awesome it has nothing to do with like like the the story ended what are we doing and that's the same thing that happens here where like the story at the house ended the like the halloween party is over and yet we got we got one more we got to kill this guy yeah and that's 
Whatever. All of the terrible people die. Isn't that the point of a slasher? You know, that's a good point. Yes. And he's terrible. Even if he's not aware of the slasher boom, that is the rules of a slasher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's really funny. So the other people that we have is... uh, So we have Judy. Um, Judy is... I... I don't know. I guess she's supposed to be our final girl. I mean, she is the final like, girl. She is the like the literal final girl alive, yeah. but she doesn't really follow a lot of typical final girl conventions because, again, like this is not a movie that's trying to. It's not a fo- slasher. It's not a slasher, so it no. doesn't play by those same rules. Alice ends up lost in Wonderland because that's what she's dressed as, and she just kind of ends up as like the last character by virtue of everyone else dies around her and uh-huh. they just don't get her yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's pretty much her. She is, I would say like the goody goody of the group. Oh so God. Yes. I guess that me- makes her fall into final girl convention. But what's funny is that she's a goody goody surrounded by some of the worst fucking people oh, yeah. Everyone in the is dreadful. world. Every single one of them. Like all of the men, with the exception of Roger, and are pieces of shit. To a, to a lesser extent, uh, the one guy who wears scrubs. Okay, yeah. He's, he's not, not terrible. He's not terrible. And Sal's fine, I guess. I think he's got an attitude problem, but he's... He definitely punches walls. Yeah, I, I, Sal doesn't strike me as as scummy. And, like, I don't, I, I trust him more than I trust Jay, I guess. Well, Maybe it's because he's the tough guy who lives long enough in a horror movie. Well, to me, so Sal is, like, for whatever reason, from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so there's that. He got, he got kicked out for fighting in school, and my mom sent me to go live with my Aunt Maureen <laughs> on the farm. It's just such a weird character choice because this movie is very much like set in los angeles and it's just like well we got this guy and that's how we talk so we gotta make him talk like this like i'm just sitting there we're watching all these dialogues where he's talking to judy's little brother and i was like why are you talking like that why why do you live here (laughs) speaking of judy's little brother billy oh billy's a little shit i love him (laughs) so he's played by donnie jeffcoat who if you are a child of the 90s, he hosted Wild and Crazy Kids, um, and he's also uh, Alexia Wheaton's boyfriend in Wish Upon a Star, future episode. Um I'm just plugging all these future episodes? Yeah, just throwing them all out there. Um <laughs> wet your appetite. Well, uh, they'll be there eventually. Uh-huh. The lines that Billy has in this movie are out of fucking control. And mind you, we're introduced to him hiding in his sister's closet while she's getting undressed, and then he bursts out and comments on her boobs. And he doesn't just comment on her having boobs. It's not like a teasing way, the way that, like, the little brother in The Hot Chick does, where he, like, is wearing the bra and is like, ooh, boobs, ugh. Like, he sexualizes his sister. He's like, your boobs are getting huge. You better, I don't even know if they keep growing. You're not, you're going to have to pay someone to tie your shoelaces for you or yes, something. Yes, and I, I ask, because this happens a lot. Like, think of, like, kids commenting on yabos or something like that but it's just like little kids comment on boobs a lot in a way that i've never been around children who comment on boobs like that so as somebody who has gigantic boobs and also a history of working with children big old nunga nungas they definitely ew but they definitely (laughs) do comment on them and sometimes it's in a way that's innocent like i've definitely had 
kids be like, whoa, yours are way bigger than my mom's. Like, mm-hmm. that's natural. That's fine. But then I've also had like students that have said wild shit to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like my third grader who said I had banging curves and a fat ass. And that haunts me forever and will haunt me forever. Still one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It is really funny, but it's really <laughs> fucked up. Oh, it's so fucked up. But it's I was like, why are you in third ever? grade talking to me like this? Goddamn. It is learned behavior. It is learned behavior. And that is an entirely different discussion to get into. But um, the way that siblings comment on each other's bodies, like it, that line feels so weird to me. I mean, did your sibling comment on your body like that? Um, like maybe she would make fun of like my sister makes fun of my my boobs a lot, but in a way that I know is like very playful mm-hmm. and is in no way like sexual sounding. Whereas like the stuff Billy says about Judy is sexual as hell and like really like, oh, I don't like that. That's that's weird. He needs to talk to somebody. <laughs> Again, this movie is schlock. But yeah. it is not a dirty word. It's just dirty thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind of just piggybacking most of the men in this movie almost all of them are just absolute garbage Mm -hmm. um and in a weird way there's something kind of appealing to that because i kind of want to punch them all in the face Mm -hmm. so then when everybody gets turned into demons uh i don't feel bad for them i'm like haha sucks to be you now yeah basically yeah which i think is fun because like i don't even know if you really even touched on the plot so they're having their Halloween party at this abandoned like it's a crema- funeral harem yeah and there's like a crematorium in the basement like mm-hmm. it's an all-in-one and they're having their party and accidentally awaken the souls of demons by doing like a Bloody Mary type thing in the mirror mm-hmm. and they're only able to come out because it's Halloween night mm-hmm. so like that's they're they're stuck in this essentially haunted house but it's not a haunted house because a haunted house implies they're ghosts this is more of like a cursed house because these yes. people were never alive. They're just pure demons. Correct. Which I love that like distinction because, you know, this is in a post-Poltergeist, post-Amityville mm-hmm. world. Like you've got to specify what's going on here. And the goth would know this. And of course the goth would know. Um, so yes, they they awaken all of these, these spooky scaries and wreak havoc and it morphs them all. Honestly, it follows a very similar pattern to me as like deadites in mm-hmm. evil dead like that's yeah. if we're gonna like compare monsters definitely way less in my opinion as like an exorcism or like a a catholic type of possession and more of like a deadite sam raimi type possession yeah because like watching the documentary like i only caught a little bit of it because i went to the post office and they were commenting on how they were specifically trying to avoid exorcist comparisons in this mm-hmm. movie including cutting out like barfing scenes mm-hmm which I think is really interesting as well. And this movie also had to change its title. It was originally called Halloween Party. And one of the producers of the Halloween franchise was like, no, that's too close. Mm-hmm. And so then they were like, okay. And they didn't want to like try to fight it. So then they changed it to Night of the Demons. I mean, honestly, I think that's a better title anyway. I think it is too. I think Halloween Party alludes to it being like a fun movie, which it is. Night of the Demons doesn't have that funness to it in that like, haha, party but right. Night of the Demons is definitely a better title. I agree. And that does lead to something really cool is the title sequence of this movie. Oh, yeah. It almost looks like it's animated in Flash, which is really, really wild. 
But yeah, it's like, that's legit animation. Yeah, it just stylistically looks like salad fingers or yeah. something, though. Oh, totally. Um, and something that I find really interesting about it is because obviously they they had done their title credits and they're like, oh, we have to do something else because we're changing the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. And they got an animator and her name is escaping me and I'm a bad person for not having this at the ready. But she was kind of nicknamed as the queen of horror at Disney because she was a Disney animator who worked specifically on villains. So she did the villains in like, she did Ursula and Jafar and um, had all, also done... All the gay characters. <laughs> all the gay characters. Uh, speaking of the villain in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, so he's yes, not gay. He's very straight. He is a fucking queen. I don't know. He's, he's upset he got a boner and wants to burn down all of Paris. <laughs> And he got a boner from a very lady lady, like the most sexy lady Disney's ever done. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but they had hired her to do the title animation, and I think that looks beautiful. She was inspired by uh, Night on Bald Mountain, the Fantasia, mm-hmm. which, which is tight. Once you hear that and you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, 100%. That's, that's definitely what you were calling on. Um, so I think that that's really cool. And they originally didn't want to do the, the title sequence because Kevin was, Kevin Tenney was like, um, or we could just do like white font on black and then I could have an extra day to shoot things or I could have extra time on a day or extra shots or extra film or whatever. And then they saw kind of, um, what she was working with and like, oh no, that's fucking cool. Like we're going to do that instead. (laughs) We, we love an animated intro sequence, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like there's something so much fun about even like Christmas vacation or, Troop Beverly Hills or just like... Don't tell on the babysitter's dad. Of course. Like, there's so many fun ones where it's just like, oh, yeah, we really liked animated title sequences during this, like, chunk of time. And I love them. And I also think that this is... This is how the movie sets the tone, is you have this animated title sequence that does have some really striking imagery that's really scary. There's spooky ghosts. But because it's animated and there is something inherently childlike it's it's playful about it yeah it feels playful so it feels very very fun and obviously the switch from the animated sequence into the live action is the pumpkin on top of the car so it is a pretty seamless transition from one world into the other so you get an idea of like okay the same energy that's in this title sequence that is the energy that we're going to get throughout this film it does not feel like a disconnect and i really like that i think it's clever i think the animation's done really well it's very cool to look at mm-hmm. um and it's a great way to kind of immerse your audience in this world especially during a time where we were used to slashers that were not intentionally funny or not intentionally fun mm-hmm. um that were trying to be terrifying oh, and yeah, this we, movie's uh, like no we're having fun here yeah this is the conversation you and i have had uh in the past about camp and how a lot of horror movies during this period that just didn't have the budget to produce exactly what they saw in their brain so they did their best are um really accidentally funny and accidentally camp but they are now like retrospectively pulling a Tommy Wiseau where it's just like, no, it was always supposed to be funny. I was like, well, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. This one clearly was. And on the topic of camp, um, I did find 
one article that I was like, I can actually use this. Uh Um, It is written by writer Eric Langberg. So thank you, Eric Langberg, for giving me material. You're an MVP. And it is from 2016, titled, Night of the Demons Deserves More Recognition as a Camp Masterpiece. Uh, Yeah, co-sign that. Um, But what they say about it is that Night of the Demons, as with many camp films, especially campy horror films, winds up being an admittedly muddled treatise on gender and sexuality. The film is concerned at many moments with sex. Sure, the aim of some or even most of this is to titillate the presumed straight male audience, but there are many moments that also seem designed to shame the audience's objectification of the female characters, and by the end, we find ourselves rooting for the possessed Angela as she converts the disgusting, sex-obsessed male characters into her army of demonic minions. Mm -hmm. And he then goes on to talk about that opening scene that I know we'll talk about as well. Nowhere is the film's have-it-both-ways attitude towards fan service objectification and simultaneous shaming of said objectification more clear than in the character of Suzanne. She is introduced in an upskirt shot, the most stereotypical fan service angle of all, as she bends over in a convenience store to inspect laundry detergent, a product that certainly carries gendered implications. Two greasy, sweaty, slack-jawed men leer at her from behind the counter, providing obvious audience stand-ins. However, we quickly realize that Suzanne is the one in control of the conversation. She knows full well what she's doing. She is providing a distraction so Angela can fill a bag with party supplies and waltz right out the front door. She has weaponized her sexual attractiveness, using it against the men to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. And that is such a camp thing. And it's funny to me that women owning their sexuality and weaponizing it knowing full well that these men are too fucking stupid to know exactly what's happening in front of them. Why is that camp? It's a great question. Probably because men don't like to be called on their shit. Yeah. Like I was sitting here thinking and it's like, well, when men weaponize sexuality, uh, it's an entirely different fucking type of movie. It's It's scary. It's scary. And it's a drama. Yeah. When women do it, it tends to fall under, like, funny. Because that couldn't actually happen. Right. And I think that's why so many people were terrified by something like Promising Young Woman, which does have an angle of weaponized sexuality in it, but not the way that Suzanne is doing in this scene. No. No. Um, there, There's playfulness in terms of how it is shot and how it functions, as opposed oh, to yeah. the, the much more jarring and scary ways that it's used in Promising a Woman. Like, it's meant as a threat, not as like a, you're just a stupid boy. Mm. Yeah, like, it has the same energy to me as Emma Stone in Zombieland. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, were they... The the ring scam. The ring scam or just any sort of, like, flashing of the puppy dog eyes. And I think the reason that it's portrayed as camp is because the men who fall for this sort of thing... Um, they either feel really stupid and they hate it mm-hmm. or they get really, really angry. Like the amount of times that you'll read things from like these incel fucks that are like, well, women can get into speeding tickets because they have boobs and the like that kind of bullshit. That's not their fault. That's the cop's fault. And that's the thing. It's not that is that is you should be mad at the system. Like 
if somebody's going to be that stupid to fall for something like that, like be smart enough to take it. That's why places like Hooters exist. These are the same people that are like, um, that waitress clearly wants to date me. No, that waitress knows that she has to be overtly nice to you and like cater to you because her life depends on tips and she has to kind of work that angle. Mm -hmm. Like be mad that the way that the system is set up in place that we have to play these fucking games just to survive. Like, fuck you. Well, all right. Now the party's back. And so is Stoogie. Hey, careful, man. She's acting really fucking weird. Don't worry, Sal. It ain't the weird ones you gotta watch out for. God, didn't your mom teach you nothing about women? One reason that it's meant to seem camp is almost because if women are sexualizing themselves on screen, you get the satisfaction of going, I'm smarter than that idiot. But also there is the element of fan service. So you're getting it both ways without the embarrassment. Yeah. At most, you get maybe secondhand, secondhand embarrassment because, oh, well, I can feel what he's feeling that I've been had. Mm hmm. So maybe that's it. Like you're you're still getting the, the 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 fruits of that labor. You still get a look at Linnea Quigley's ass. And then there's also the aspect that speaking just in terms of movie making, if a woman owns her sexuality and it's not presented in a way that's humorous, it becomes pornographic. Yeah. And you know, then you have to deal with that sort of rating system, which is super annoying and ridiculous. Yeah, and I, it's it's really funny that when you think about how Angela gets turned and she starts to act very erratically, like she's listening to Bauhaus, ha, and doing like a really dramatic dance, and it's really good. Yeah, she really like the and also um, Amelia Kincaid, who is the actress who plays Angela. She's a professional dancer. Um, she got the role because she's the lead in a Stray Cats music video. Um, she choreographed that dance herself, which mm-hmm. I think is really impressive. Yeah. Um, but something in this article that I think kind of connects these two points is they say, Suzanne is the embodiment of female sexuality. All pink frills, gaudy makeup, and time spent staring into mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's a deliciously campy overperformance of gender. And it's no accident that she's the first one possessed by the demon that Angela's seance releases from the basement of the mortuary. She begins acting strange, speaking in a much deeper voice than she had previously used. And here, too, we see a very intentional slippage of gender performance. Then, just before the gang splits up to explore the house, Suzanne plants a kiss on Angela. The men are clearly intrigued and aroused, if not confused. Once more, Suzanne has weaponized her sexuality. In kissing Angela in what at first appears to be a move to titillate the men, we soon learn that she has passed her demon possession onto Angela and has enlisted her in her mission to kill the others. Yeah, and you really think about that, though, and everyone might think, like, that's weird, but that's also sexy. Mm Mm-hmm. To the point where then you have Angela doing her dance, and they're just overlooking all of these clear red flags where... Like Stooge is is gonna is gonna follow Suzanne in like a really eerie way to a bathroom, and then she's gone, and then he's gonna come back, and he's gonna get his tongue bitten off, 
kissing someone who is acting also very erratically and strange because he's just thinking with his dick. Mm-hmm. And everyone is overlooking these clear warning signs. There are so many red flags of like something is not right here. And everybody is completely ignoring them because, yeah, but titties, though. Yeah, but titties, though. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. But I, I, I want to talk about that kiss, though, because there's a couple things to unpack here is one it does play into the whole like titillation, objectification, and fetishization of lesbian relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way that to me, like it has that scene has never felt offensive to me mm-hmm. because I fully know what's happening is that this isn't Suzanne and Angela like trying to do this thing. This is the demon that is knowing full well how these people are all going to play into this hand. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a really telling thing and a very aware thing of like how lesbians kind of exist in the world. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very smart and very clever, but the actor who plays Roger, um, Alvin Alexis pointed out in the documentary that that kiss ended up being kind of a big deal. One, because of course there were plenty of people that were like <laughs> girls kissing in that movie. Yeah. Don't um, they recreate that kiss every chance they get? Pretty much. They do it a lot <laughs> of conventions that they're super good friends. They're really close. Which I love that. Which I, it's so sweet. And I love that. Um, but Make what, out with your friends more. Yeah. Normalize making out with your friends. Um, but what Alvin brings up in the documentary is that, there is this subtextual thing going on because it is 1988. Mm-hmm. So the AIDS epidemic is ravaging through the queer communities. And, and at this point, you think even Reagan has finally acknowledged it. I Yeah, I think we might be this. It might be this, this year. We finally have gotten there. Yeah. Um, but people were still convinced that you could get AIDS from physical contact. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting in hindsight to look at this movie that the demonic, I guess, like passing is initiated by a homosexual kiss. Granted, mm-hmm. it's between two women, but it like that gay kiss, because that's a gay kiss, mm-hmm. um, is then what passes the the demon possession from Suzanne to Angela and then she continues to pass it on and then they continue like turning everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it it feels kind of patient zero-y in a way that I, I do not think it was their intention. Like this no. was not this was not some sort of like bigger issue to talk about AIDS, nor was it like, hey, let's demonize AIDS. That was not what's happening. No, here. I don't think this movie put any more thought into presenting what's happening at pure face value. Yeah, no. No, no, no. Um, But it is really fascinating when you look at what was going on culturally and then also look at what's going on on the screen because horror has always been a reflection of the anxieties that are existing of the people, whether consciously or subconsciously, Mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, even until his death, George Romero always swore that Dwayne Jones was just the best actor for the job. Yeah, he wasn't trying to make, like, a racial message. Yeah, it wasn't trying to be this big statement by casting a black man in Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. But because of what was going on culturally, it changes the message of the movie. Like, the impact far surpasses the intent. And I think that's what we're getting here with this movie, is 
it was definitely not their intent to like no, I mean, make an AIDS I, allegory. Again, we had to dig real deep to find out some stuff about yeah, this movie yeah. more than just like, hey, I like this movie. These are good effects. Right. Um, but the impact of that scene, especially from a modern lens, you're like, wow, that's really telling. And that's really saying something mm-hmm. about those anxieties. And I think it's really, really interesting because I also think Night of the Demons as a very kind of campy movie this movie I do know is embraced by a lot of queer people. Mm-hmm. Like they love it. Um, Especially cause like, and this is honestly really, really tight is that Roger is, he reads very gay. Yeah. And I do not have any confirmation on whether Alvin Alexis is gay. I have no confirmation whether or not Roger was intending to be this queer character. He, he um, feels queer. He, and yeah, he feels it. He and, reads it. And every thing about like, oh, this is like an AIDS allegory. It's like, oh, a gay black man. He knows damn well to run. Yeah, yes. Like, don't get near this shit because you are the like the prime target for this. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Because that's that's the narrative that always gets left out when we do these like modern discussions about the AIDS epidemic. Is we never acknowledge how severely it impacted the black community mm-hmm. because like, no oh, well, one... there's magic johnson you have easy e and one died and one didn't and that that's pretty much where that story ends yeah it's so frustrating um so again like while this was clearly not the intention this movie ends up having this really powerful message because of these circumstances the noise the stink and the chill they're all signs of demonic infestation demonic what demonic what call it I mean, come on! A little Ange here is just trying to put the old hula-hoop on us, okay? <laughs> yeah, Ange, I'm sure you're right, okay? Or could it be that Raj here just had too much cold beer and blew us a cool, stiff breeze right out of his butthole? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what you all think. My daddy was a preacher. And I know better than to be in here fooling with this stuff. This is a house of the dead. And I'm getting out now before it's too late. Yeah, and obviously there's this, like, this sort of meta humor of Roger being, like, a black man who's like, oh, yeah, I'm not fucking around with this scary house. I'm I'm out. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is, like, I think what they were going for. But when you actually dig deeper into, like, what was going on culturally and now looking back at it with this lens, which I can't not notice now. Right. It's impossible. It's impossible. So it has this dual meaning that is, makes this movie much more interesting than it otherwise would have been. Yeah, because I think it's really easy to look at something like Night of the Demons and be like, oh, this is a fun, campy, schlocky movie, Mm -hmm. which it is all of those things. Yeah. But it's also doing something really interesting, and I I think that it's really, really fun. Lots of little interesting things. It's it's, it's almost sneaky with how cool the stuff that's going on in this movie is, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, and we can also talk about, so the, the most iconic moment of the entire movie is the lipstick scene. Oh, yeah. Hands down, it's untouchable. Like, people argue, like, well, Angela's dance. Yeah, Angela's dance is awesome, but if you say Night of the Demons, people are like, remember that time Linnea Quigley shoved an entire tube of lipstick in her nipple? Yeah. Um, so in this article, there's something really cool about it where it says, whereas before Suzanne was an overperformance of female sexuality, here now that she is possessed and therefore monstrous, she becomes a misperformance of gender. Her makeup, a way women are expected to signal their femininity, before was gaudy and a manifestation of her laughable vanity. Mm -hmm. Now it's an indication that there is something deeply, 
frightening about her. Mm-hmm. It's laughable at first, of course, on two levels. It's funny to see someone who has intentionally applied lipstick like that in what appears to be an earnest attempt to fix her face. But then it's also funny that Night of the Demons apparently thinks that this is an eerie and unsettling scene. But when we next see Suzanne, she has ripped open her shirt and is tracing the lipstick down her chest, circling her breast, and spiraling to her nipple as though hypnotizing the viewer. The mm-hmm. music has changed, as has her body language. This isn't funny anymore. The film tips over into legitimately creepy territory. It's actually eerie and unsettling. And then, in a moment that would make Freud's head explode, she manages to penetrate her nipple with the lipstick tube and shoves the entire thing into her breast. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Suzanne isn't so silly anymore. Mm-hmm. And I... I love that because completely correct. Of course you love it. You also stick things in your boobs. Not in them. Like (laughs) under them. Just between them. Between them, under them. A whole bottle of vodka. My bra is Mary Poppins bag. You never know what's coming out of there. And the size of the things I pull out of there are always misleading. Um, But in in terms of the scene with Linnea Quigley, this is also an example, though, of... Clear red flags mm-hmm. being very ignored. And then, you know what? Jay just thinks like, oh, maybe she had a little too much to drink. Anyway, I'm just going to come in here because you're acting a little weird. Maybe that's it. Who knows? Yeah, whatever. You're hot and your titties are out and I'm about to get thumbs jammed into my eyes. Yep. Uh, which Linnea Quigley had to come in and practice because she didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she came in and practiced doing it. But like if I walked into a room at a party and one of my friends was titties out and rubbing makeup on their face, I would be like, okay, honey, we're going to put you to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going on here. No, in no universe would I be like, well, I guess this is my open shot. Uh-huh. And that again, that's why I think Sal isn't as much of a scumbag as Jay. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, Jay's kind of the worst. Well, I think Sal also is one is like that, the, he's the tough guy character who gets to live long enough that he sort of gets to redeem himself because he, he's he's the brute. He might save the day mm-hmm. and then he doesn't. But like he actually isn't killed by sexuality. When he's really the only one who's not killed in that sense by in a in a sexual in a sexual yeah, that's scenario. A good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Um so speaking of saving the day though, so you know, Roger lives mm-hmm. and so does Judy. What I like the most about the two of them living though is that it's hard to to survive Mm -hmm. they've got to scale this wall that the only thing they can hold on to is barbed wire so like the entrance disappeared yeah so there's no hole they're they're cutting their hands open to survive Mm -hmm. um you know roger gets up first and then he helps judy also escape um and he'd been being a coward the whole time like to the point where he's just like fuck this and leaps out of a window yes and it's it's almost exorcisty in in that way but it's it's funny and he doesn't die yeah, he, he gets kind of this arc of facing his fears, helping somebody survive, becoming a hero when the whole movie he's been very much like, Mm-mm, no, I'm out of here. He gets his moment. He gets his moment. And I find that really interesting. But I do think that in my heart of hearts, part of me thinks that maybe the reason this movie didn't catch the way that it deserved to is because dominant audience at the time was cis straight white men and the survivors are a woman and a black man and they can't relate to that because heaven forbid somebody have to headcanon themselves into a movie yeah and 
I don't think there's ever really that moment where the final girl strikes back. Like she has like the flamethrower that she pulls out of just a pipe in the wall. And, like, yeah, yeah. That's sort of where you have your your welcome to my world, bitch, kind of moment. And like it's it's cool. It doesn't really kill anyone. It just sears them. But I don't know if it was satisfying for people because she doesn't really end up killing anyone. She doesn't win. They just kind of escape, and that's that's it. And ultimately, she would not have survived that Roger. Yeah. Because he has to pull her up. Like, at one point... She's really not even trying oh, to pull herself not, up. He's like, doing all the work. We're watching it, and like she keeps like talking about, like, oh, it hurts too much. I can't do it. I can't do it. And he's like, I'm up here. Grab my hand. And she puts all of her body weight on his arm, and he has to, like, strong arm her up this wall. Uh-huh. Come on, Judy. <sighs> Give him at least an inch. Um, so... You know, I don't I don't know. And obviously that could be me projecting from a modern lens, but I I love how historic that ending is. It's mm-hmm. so powerful. Um and it is nothing like like nothing that you we were really seeing in like a mainstream horror movie at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really, really cool. Um something else that I learned from the documentary that I kind of want to bring up as I guess like the sprinkling towards this wrap up is uh, on the set. They all discussed how the house they shot in, cause the house is a real house. It's not a set mm-hmm. and the house no longer exists. It's apparently now a Ralph's. So Great. it's a grocery store, <laughs> haunted grocery store. But apparently this house was really creepy. And a lot of them were like, we're not saying it's haunted, but we're not, not saying that. Um, they definitely had weird experiences, uh, heard weird things. It was just an overall kind of unsettling place to shoot a movie, but a perfect place to shoot a movie like this. But they constantly played like pranks on each other and would hide and jump out or would hide things and just had a lot of fun on set and became kind of this this real family of people, which mm-hmm. I love. But I wanted to ask you, like, did you do any like teenage rambunctious spooky nonsense when you were a teenager i mean we hung out at a cemetery pretty routinely because okay you go to crown hill because it's down like a very very large hill that's like impossible to ride a bike back up Mm -hmm. and you would go down there because it's really isolated and it was had a lot of cool shit so you'd do that or you would go up the hill and essentially cross the street and then you would break into central which was the abandoned school that looked kind of like a castle okay and it closed because it was like, oh, fuck, asbestos is bad for you. Ugh, well, we're not going to pay to like retrofit this. And then they just left it there. And it ended up being used as storage for like medical stuff for like the nearby nursing home. So these old people's wheelchairs were just getting stored in this asbestos ass building. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So that that's a thing. Fine. Whatever. But it was very much like a, a thing that you do is just, you know, you do it at least once. You're bored. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And... I don't know, like, we definitely got into, like, a little bit of shenanigans doing that, because, of course, you're you're gonna be there. Um, I have friends who, in Cleveland, used to break into, like, the old mental institution before they tore it down, mm-hmm. and tell me these, like, American Horror Story Asylum kind of things, where it's like, oh, yeah, no, you went there, and they just left everything. Like, there's tons of, like, electrocution machines, and, like, patients' files, just cabinets and cabinets full of them, because, like, what the fuck are you gonna do with them? And it's like, this shouldn't be here. Yeah. And I just think that stuff is spooky and fascinating and like what what's the term that people are using now um urban spelunking or something like yeah, that. Yeah, urban spelunking. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I I think that's tight. We had a 
abandoned cookie factory what? where I grew up. It was a candy factory, then it was a cookie factory. I think it's gone, gone now. But that was a pretty common place that we used to like sneak into, um, get in trouble, uh, just do spooky stuff. Everyone was convinced it was haunted, obviously. Well, yeah, you always think something's haunted. Everyone said that Central was haunted, and I don't know why. No one ever died there. Yeah, just ridiculous teenage just shenanigans. Um, but when I was in college, one of the buildings on campus, and I will say it by name because there are like articles online about it, mm-hmm. but Simpkins Hall at Western Illinois University is a building that is shared between like theater and English. And I think that's it. I think that's who uses oh, that building. Oh, the arts. Oh, the arts. Um, but it's a really old building and there is a stairway at the front of the building and it's all the fo- like the fourth wall of the building is all glass mm-hmm. so you can see through the glass like up all three or four flights of stairs whatever it is and legend has it that there there's a couple ghosts in that building and one of them is a janitor that um you can hear like cleaning uh, one is somebody who's typing, like you will randomly hear a typewriter. And if you go to find like the typewriter that's in the building, no, like no one will be there, but you'll hear the keys. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is somebody who apparently like legend has it, they hung themselves and now you can see them floating in the, uh, in the stairway. So there was this one time, uh, we did a 24 hour playwriting festival. So what you okay. did is you got 12, like you pulled things out of a hat, you got 12 hours to write a play and then like the director and the actors would have 12 hours to rehearse it. And then at the end of the 24 hours, everybody performed it. It was very fun, very yeah. silly, but I participated and I was a writer. So we all went to Simpkins cause that's where the black box theater was. We drew our things and then we went into like different theater rooms that we all had access to to write. So I'm there for 12 hours and like we picked our thing at like 7 p.m. So Mm -hmm. I'm there at like 3 a.m. And I can hear the sound of like when somebody's running past a thing of lockers and like hitting their hand across all of them. Like that, that, yeah, that constantly bapping. So I'm hearing all this bapping and I'm like, what the fuck is that? So I lean my head out and there's nobody there. And I'm like, okay, somebody probably just ran by really fast. And then as I'm going back into the room, I start hearing the typewriter and I was like someone is clearly fucking with me like this is not cool I walk down the hallway I go to like see if I can find the typewriter and the typing stops I'm like that's weird so I go back in the room so the room that I was in was the room to the back of what connects to the black box theater and it was split by like a hard wood door with a window in the top so i could see into the black box theater no one was in there just the ghost light was on which if you don't know anything about theater the ghost light is literally called that to appease the ghosts in haunted theaters (laughs) like that's where it gets its name and i'm in the room and i'm like god this is so weird i hate this i'm I'm so done. Someone else who's in the room with me was like, okay, so you're hearing this too. It's not just me. And I'm like, yeah, okay. We both sit there. We hear another noise and we're like, okay, yeah, we're out of here. Like, fuck this. We're not doing it. And as we're leaving, we see in the window of that door, like what looks like an apparition go by the window. And we're like, nope, absolutely not. We bolt out of there. We're like, fuck this place. 
We leave Simpkins. And then as we're leaving, we turn like something compelled us and we both turned around and we turn around and we see something in the window and we're like, God damn it. No, we're like, we're, we're losing it. We've got to be losing it. So we're walking, we're walking. We run into some of our friends who are also doing this playwriting Mm -hmm. thing. And we're outside on the sidewalk and we're like, you're not going to believe what we just, like, we saw this thing and we heard this thing. Like, Simpkins is absolutely haunted. This is so scary. It was so freaky. And then I don't remember, somebody did something, like, spooked one of us or said something, but we all screamed. And as we screamed, the light that was above us on the sidewalk went out and we went, nope and like fucked off into the night and i was like i don't care how bad this script is i was like no this is so scary what does that have to do with the night of the demons absolutely nothing i just wanted an excuse to tell a spooky haunted story that i used a segue to get from the (laughs) from the documentary where they said that the house was haunted happy halloween happy halloween (laughs) so do you have any other final thoughts on a, a night of the demons I think that I would very much die in this scenario because I don't have the instinct of Roger to be like, nope, I'm out because I don't believe in ghosts and demons. So I'd be like, I mean, if they're real, I'm fucked and I just accept it (laughs) because I'm not going to be like, no, I came all the way out here. What do you want me to leave now for? Oh, I would have called a lift immediately. Like we're, I'm not playing here. (laughs) Bye-bye. Honestly, I don't think I would have shown up. If they would have been like, we're partying in an abandoned funeral home, I would have been like, I'm sick. Because <laughs> I don't fuck with that. Because I do believe in ghosts. And right. they give me the spooky scaries. And I don't want to fuck with that. Everywhere I've ever worked, everyone's like, there's a ghost here. And I'm like, everyone always says there's a fucking ghost. There's never a ghost. Just, I have never seen the ghost. I'm just glad that in our new place, I have never felt like, I think this is haunted. So that's good. Oh, good. Our old place, sometimes. It was not haunted. <laughs> I don't think our place was haunted. I think our basement was haunted. The basement was not haunted. It was just old. It was spooky scary. Yeah, I know. It was just old. There were dust demons in there. No, you're like Kevin McAllister with the basement. <laughs> that's so scary. <laughs> All right, Harmony. Well, the time has come. Night of the Demons is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? You know, before we did like our deep dives on other people's thoughts that had clearly picked up on things that we had not even just put two and two together on, this might have been a maybe, like a high maybe, but like, no, it's it's a yes. Yay. Especially because like, it's, it's just a fun, it's a fun Halloween movie and it's actually set at Halloween, which there's a surprisingly low number of those considering how many you'd think there would be. I think it's because just Halloween exists I, it and people that were like, much, yeah. eh, we can't do this now. Yeah, so I don't know. I just I think it's I think it's very fun. I think there's a lot of really cool things to notice. Honestly, honestly like the effects for the transformations are really good and I wish we could see them better. Agreed. They look like you can see a ton of behind the scenes photos and Things like that online, and they are incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's too dark, and there's only flashes of it that you don't get to really appreciate them as much. Yeah. Bummer. Well, beautiful. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. This was a lot of fun. We hope that you had fun with us. You can always support the show by giving us that five-star review on Apple. It really, really genuinely does help. As silly as it sounds, we must pay our respects to the SEO algorithm overlords. You can also support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at this ends at prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. 
And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, who is the cool indie band of the week you want us to check out? I have a segue for this in everything. Aw, shit. Okay, so we mentioned it earlier in the show, but Linnea Quigley was in a movie called Nightmare Sisters. Yes, she was. And in that, she performs a song. It's called S&M Boulevard Boys. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I believe the S&M stands for Santa and Monica. <laughs> and it's it's about a, a little femboy of the night, and that song fucking rules. It rules so hard that I straight up bought an expensive compilation of girl punk rock and metal bands from the Sunset Strip called like the Sounds of Hollywood Girls because it has that song on it. It's the only release of it. I think it rules that much. So I really wanted to capture that energy of like Linnea quickly busted out like some gnarly, gritty, Sunset Strip sounding punk and heavy metal stuff. Mm -hmm. So the band I am plugging is not from the Sunset Strip. They're actually from England, very far away from California. And they're called Made of Ace and Made is spelled like French Maid. And it's similarly to kind of how Night of the Demons works, where it's been around for a really long time, but it's sort of floating underground and people either know about it or they don't. This band's been around for like a decade and just not really blown up in the way that I think they should. They, uh, real gnarly, all-girl band, got a lot of energy similar to like the Distillers. So very aggressive, very punchy, cool, cool stuff. Big, I love big it. Big fan. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, like their first album still my favorite. They released a new album last year. Also still good. So tight. Well, cool. That's great. Mm-hmm. I recommend Bone Death and Dirty Girl. Ooh, fancy. It sounds like sex and death. A little bit. I mean, it works for the theme. (laughs) (laughs) All right, friends. That takes us out on Night of the Demons. We will see you next time. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. How about an orgy? I'm sure if we try, we can get Jay hard again. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.